The Persistent and Nasty podcast is a series of interviews and informal discussions with inspiring women and other marginalised voices in theatre, film and beyond. From actors to activists, we aim to amplify these voices and invite the world to stay nasty. Hello you gorgeous thought and welcome to another episode of the Persistent and Nasty podcast. Elaine here, how are you all doing? Hope you're looking after yourselves, staying well and taking care of yourself and each other. Well today I am joined by the brilliant uh, Jenna Watt. Jenna is a theatre maker, writer, performer, facilitator, all round spectacular human and of course an intersectional feminist and we talk today about many things actually. We talk about um, Jenna's work, her new book Hindsight which is available right now, all linked in the show notes. Uh, Jenna talks about her pathway through the industry, we talk about creating your own work, the need quite a lot of the time for that, that feeling of rooms being closed to some of us or to everyone um, and um, is that more to do with the lack of resources and funding so therefore it's a limited amount of people in the space, some people feel it's other things but then what that pushes us to do is create our own work. As some of you will have seen, Louise's film has reached its target. Yay! So she is definitely getting um, the match funding from Creative Scotland for her short film In The Room, her and Barry's short film In The Room. And uh, right now they are into the stretch funding. So if you can, if you have anything um, spare to pass on, because this film really is important. Um, it's We discuss it in last week's episode and it is the experience of a lot of people in our industry. It is um, really, It really is a vital piece of cinema. And if you can't financially support, please continue to share the link, uh, share the conversation about the film. That would be amazing. And I know I'm asking you for more things, more, 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 more. But if you would like to support us, Persistent and Nasty, in the work that we do, not only uh, the podcast, but the advocacy work that we do and the monthly coffee mornings that we hold um, for our artistic community, we would be super grateful if you would like to be a persistent pal or a nasty hero. Uh, you can donate monthly to us. Uh, the link is in the description box. Or you can always just give us the price of a cup of coffee. Whatever you can afford. We know that times are really, really tough. And we are super grateful to all of the people who are giving to us already. Your generosity is so unbelievably gratefully received and you are yeah you are keeping us going and it is um down to you so thank you so very much and if you can we would really appreciate that and if you can't financially support us again shouting about us from all of your social media platforms is exactly what to do download the episode, uh, subscribe to the podcast, comment on the um, episodes. That really does help the old algorithm, as you all know, because I constantly like to tell you. And you can always follow us on all social media. Twitter, at Persistent Nasty. Instagram, at Persistent and Nasty. Facebook, Persistent and Nasty. Send us an email to persistentandnasty at gmail.com. And you can follow Louise and I on social media as well. Louise is at Ms. Louise Oliver on both Twitter and Instagram. And I am at Elaine Stirrett on Twitter and at Elaine.Stirrett on Instagram. I think that's everything that I've covered today, she says, hoping. Um check the show notes for anything else um but as i say the link for jenna's book is in the show notes of today's episode oh i knew there was something i was supposed to say um jenna was absolutely wonderful during this podcast um as all our guests are but jenna was particularly wonderful because i was having an absolute brain fog day um Whatever this flu, cold, possibly COVID thing was, um, my brain has not been functioning 
at its uh, proper level and um, words were escaping me. So thank you, Jenna, for your patience because it was it was needed <laughs> quite a lot of the time. So I really, really appreciate that. And because I was having a wee brain quiet day, let's go with that, um, for something to drink with this episode. Oh, maybe you want something that's got a wee bit of zest in it. So maybe like a ginger beer or something with a bit of lime, maybe something fruity. Uh, you could always have um, branded uh, soft drinks, uh, juice, as we call it in Scotland. Um, <laughs> uh, ginger also, iron brew, no branding mentioned whatsoever uh, <laughs> or you know coffee that's a great stimulant hot chocolate or just a good old cup of tea sit back relax and enjoy it does freak me out every time every time it's the um, voice isn't it i know i think that's what it is it feels like it. oh wow ai really is in our face jenna mm-hmm. Watt, welcome to the persistent and nasty podcast Yay, thanks for having me. <laughs> it's so lovely to have you. Um, for those people who don't know, Jenna is a theatre maker, writer, award-winning theatre maker. Yeah, apparently so. Facilitator as well, because you've facilitated. Yeah, but facilitating, but a mentoring, just, you know, whatever is required. And just, yeah, the, the, the joys of the industry. Um, well, Give our listeners a little potted history of Jenna Watt. How did you come into this crazy, wonderful, uh, infuriating, inspiring industry of ours? Sure. So I uh, grew up in Inverness and I went on to do study uh, theatre at college. Um, At that time when I was studying, you couldn't do a degree in theatre in the Highlands. So I had to leave uh, and I travelled down to Edinburgh and I did a degree uh, at the at Queen Margaret or QMUC as it was then um, and from there after graduating I got various sort of front of house jobs in lots of different uh, kinds of venues um, like North Edinburgh Art Centre and the Traverse um, and then just gradually uh, started to eke out a bit of a career um, I worked in the fruit market gallery for a while as uh, what they called them like invigilators at the time and uh, meant you had to sit quietly around the contemporary artwork observing people's behaviours and assisting with information and uh, I remember I sat there and I wrote my first funding application to the Scottish Arts Council as it was then and I think even then it might have been handwritten at that time that's a bit weird no I must have done it on a computer I'm not that old yeah. uh, <laughs> but I definitely had to hand it in in person I think that was a thing you couldn't do it online yet um so yeah that's kind of <clears throat> oh I guess that's kind of how the ball got rolling um so did you train as an actor first in Inverness was it a college? Yeah. yeah yeah so it, it ended up having to be an actor because that's what was on offer um, so I think it was like an NC in theatre arts, which um, was mostly uh, practical. So it was it was um, workshop facilitating and um, uh, yeah, acting and then followed by an HNC in acting and performance. Um, but it was all quite uh, loose and <laughs> just random, a little bit random. We had quite a lot of control over what we did and um as a little group so it was quite a quite an exciting quite an exciting time and then yeah got to Edinburgh and had to sort of knuckle down and uh learn things in a more academic way um, yeah, what was your degree in at, so yeah uh, drama drama theatre arts and um, so that was kind of uh um well I guess my specialism was a new one at the time in the third and fourth year you could specialize so I did um Oh, what was it called? I think it was Contemporary Performance in Action, which uh, <clears throat> I think maybe only lasted two years and our year was the guinea pigs. Um, but again, we had some really, <clears throat> excuse me, brilliant tutors, uh, freelancers that came in to work with us. We had like Diane Tor, David Leddy, Laura Cam Lewis, to name a few. So some really exciting people that were making really interesting work at the time. Um, and it, it never, it was never to rival the, 
conservatoires version at all and um, we had quite a different uh setup I think um but it gave me uh, an insight into that the contemporary performance the live art world which you know at that time in Glasgow was so rich because of the NRLA um and the winter schools that they would run so I kind of uh graduated and went off into that world and explored and um, what it might feel like to be uh, working within that kind of work, within that genre of work, because I, I found it really exciting at that time, um, getting to see people like Ron Athey, um, Frank B, <laughs> people like that. It's just like, wow, this is a young woman from Inverness, you know. <laughs> I was just like, this is absolutely amazing. Yeah. <laughs> this is incredible stuff. Um, so that's kind of, I guess, in terms of my career practically, that's where, that's kind of where I started to cut my teeth a little bit in terms of my practice and my process. And then it kind of went on to become uh, what I what I started referring to as a theatre maker for myself because it meant that kind of encapsulated all the different roles that you'd have to take on. And mostly because money was so tight or non-existent. So the directing, the writing, producing um the dramaturging, the <laughs> community facilitation, if that was going to happen alongside it, um, the marketing, uh, all the things. So um yeah. <clears throat> yeah, kind of went from there. Yeah, that's like all the hats, right? It's yeah. um it's really interesting because like lots of people I think make that assumption, don't they, about people in the arts that you know you've got your one job, you're an actor, or you're this, you're that, but actually so many always have to deviate from that one thing or actually love doing all of the other ones so it's like how do you find the way and you know theatre maker is absolutely one of those ways um, do you think the kind of freedom and the the rawness of um that side of things appealed to you more so actually I feel like that came about again out of necessity uh, because it was a case of um having to make opportunities happen. Uh, so I I found it very difficult, and I still do, uh, to get into rooms um, and to be in other people's processes, it, which, you know, I think we all struggle with. You know, we all, we all face that frustration of there's rooms we would love to be in, um, but you can only have so many people in those spaces, right? Um, and I think... I, I, I think... I was getting tired of being told no uh, and not being told no because I wasn't necessarily right or good or but just because there just aren't enough opportunities to go around so I thought okay well I'll just have to make my own then um, and I'll I'll do all the things and um, just sort of strike out there and 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 go for it and uh, that's kind of where the theatre maker thing came from it was just that's how that's how I was able to survive and I think I was really envious of um of people you know that were maybe playwrights that from the outside seemed to be allowed into those rooms with a certain level of privilege and they would maybe it felt maybe they, there was like a clearer trajectory for their work um but I don't think that's true now um you know I, I feel like everybody struggles in the same way and everybody feels that lots of rooms are closed to them and for whatever reason so everybody's striking out in their own way and so I think for me yeah it just it it wasn't that I didn't want to do that more traditional thing it was just that I couldn't could not get into those rooms Mm, that makes I think probably lots of people listening will resonate with that and will feel the same as well, that that sense of the not being able to get into the room and having to forge your own way through it all. Um, and as you say, a lot of it is down to lack of money, lack of time. Um, some people would argue it's a lack of vision from some people that we are like, you know, similar people that are employed, but then other people would argue but you're on a limited time frame, so you work with people that you know you're going to get what you're looking for from. So it's it's always that kind of tricky balance. Um, and what about for your first show that you created, your first project? So the first, uh, I guess the first 
do I want to talk about the very first? Does anyone <laughs> want to talk about the very first? Uh, so the, I guess well, do the, you, like, because, sorry to interrupt, but like, Louise and I talk about this all the time, like, that idea of your first thing, whether it goes well or it doesn't, it's that this sense in, I think probably in all industries, but one in particularly in ours is that, like, the idea of failure, quote unquote, um, isn't, actually celebrated it's like it's got to be right straight away and how do we learn and grow if it if that's the case yeah so I think with the first first thing I did it was on at Arches Live and uh, it was that was like such a big deal that was such a big deal and the only reason I got it was I I did a scratch um first and uh I'd like put everything into it uh like because I you know like all of us we're all really visual thinkers and I just made a point of like trying to put that on stage to make it really clear what this what this scratch was kind of an insight into what the invitation was and I was just very fortunate that you know um Jackie was in at the time and was quite intrigued you know I didn't I didn't come from the Glasgow scene I was outside of that I was adjacent to that so um, so maybe there just wasn't the same um, connection or, or links or it felt like, um, well, I don't know, like, oh, maybe this is an interesting thing to give an opportunity to. Anyway, so I, I got I got fun. I got some money um, and I was able to do that and then and then sort of lived in the basement for four weeks and tried to make a show on my own. And I had collaborators, but I didn't have the money to have them in with me for any any amount of time and they were having to come from Edinburgh so they had these you know extortionate train tickets that they were having to pay for until I got anything from box office anyway so that work was so hard it was so hard to make and yeah a real real learning curve I think um and although like the the piece was really like visual and a bit bizarre and I love the design of it and the sound of it and uh it, it in terms of story it was probably absolute key you know and that's the story is so important to me now but yeah. and I was just like oh my god I'm in just live <laughs> so it was uh yeah it was uh, there was a little bit of that worry I think where you think oh this is this is me I'm getting to shoot my shot and that's always really scary mm. um uh, and then yeah that it had a little life and then we I just put it away <laughs> partly because there was so much so many like props it was like quite a uh pop heavy thing and so then moved on from that um but yeah there were definitely definitely loads of lessons to be learned from that just around what what I actually need to make a, a show and and for me working in the basement wasn't the most conducive um environment and then from that that piece you then moved on um and I think I would love to hear about a couple more of your projects before we get to your most recent your most recent project yeah so after um after Arches Live um I think I spent a couple of years doing some arts admin uh, <laughs> earning a living I uh, then went on to create a work called Flaneur and I was really fortunate enough to at that time connect with uh, Forest Fringe um, which was Andy Field uh, era, era and it is era brand I've always worried I'm going to say Ira Glass it's era brand <laughs> and Deborah Pearson and I uh, got to connect with them a little bit and I went out to Portugal and did uh, uh, a thing with them uh, in Lisbon um, and they, they'd taken out a load of artists uh, together like Bryony Kimmings and Kieran uh, Hurley and uh, performed their action hero were there did a scratch and it was exploring the bystander effect and uh, whether people would intervene when they saw um, an act of violence perhaps or an emergency situation and that again was a really um really challenging piece of work actually where I invited audiences to um chase me up a slope and stop me from getting to the top of a slope and at the top was a little whistle that the audience could blow 
and immediately end the performance if they felt something wasn't going to plan. Um, so anyway, had sort of countless interactions with audience members who were always very passive. And then I had one guy in a tiger suit who was in Lisbon for Carnival, who so clearly had different intentions to every other person that I encountered. And the interaction became uh, quite aggressive. And I was very quickly out of control of the situation. And I was like looking at the audience, like pleading with my eyes, like stop this. And they didn't because they didn't know the rules or like they didn't know this they didn't want to ruin it I think mm-hmm. is the thing to them this was quite a safe safe thing and and the man is in like a tiger costume so you probably would think there's something quite deliberate in that mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> sort of like symbolically yeah. became this mad thing it's like wow this is this is out of my control and fortunately the security guard stepped in and uh, uh I was really shaken by it and, you know, Forrest Finch were great, like Andy and um, was, was, you know, really good at supporting me afterwards because it was quite scary. And I remember going in to see Kieran's show afterwards and the, the person was in the audience. I was just like, oh, my God, what am I going to do? Like, I just felt very, very vulnerable. Anyway, so that was like great for the show. <laughs> and then I really understood the bystander effect. Yeah. <laughs> and like, I, I had felt like I was in genuine danger and um, needed people to step in and people were there. So I was like, wow. So I went off and I made Flinner. But I used, um, rather than using that example in the work, um, it, I reached out to a friend of mine who had experienced um, uh acts of violence being made towards them in London um, and they were gracious enough to let me use their story so then um, I took that to the festival and that was my first festival appearance at Summer Hall and um, yeah that went on to have some success um, and tour so that was kind of like a really that was quite a big moment um, there's been like lots of those sort of um, I guess moments where you have been able to reflect on okay is this is this going to be part of my practice or is this just a a learning thing and I think I think Flaneur and, and that what happened in Lisbon was one of those moments for sure yeah I mean yeah there's like as someone who is a fan of um being part of immersive theatre and then going to as an audience member as well but that um that feeling of being out of control with an audience um, especially when you're looking at something like the bystander effect that must have as you say really shaken you but also that kind of situation that I think what you just touched on there as well about the rules of theatre is so fascinating and then with um, you took obviously that to the festival and you said it was your first experience what was your first experience like of the Edinburgh Festival because it is a whirlwind yeah I think the so when I was at Summer Hall it was 2012 so I think that might have been their second year as a festival venue I think uh, uh, second or third Uh, yeah Yeah, they wouldn't have been they wouldn't have been going long at that point yeah no no they weren't so like they were still I think finding their feet um, and their kind of identities as a, a fringe space um so oh uh, and we were competing like with the olympics in london um so i think audience numbers were audience numbers low were that big, year yeah they were really low in my show <laughs> 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 they're always really low in my shows no one no one actually comes to see my work <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no it's true it's true and no one like talks about it it just sort of happens and it's fine and um, somebody turns up the right people turn up and um, which is nice. The uh, so it was, it was, it was good. It was, you know, it was sharing um, dressing rooms with, you know, companies and being on top of each other. You know, there's always that kind of awkward, like twenty minutes or half an hour where you have to turn around and kind of get your set through the doors and <laughs> audience wandering in. Was this the show of the night? You know, all that stuff. So it's kind of like a little bit intense and. Oh gosh, yeah, things like arriving and and the room um 
you know, I don't think they'd got, they'd managed to uh, fit it up in time technically. So it's like we were there to do our tech and there was actually no tech in the room. So, you know, it was all that sort of really great stuff <laughs> that you encounter. Um, you know, fortunately, like summer hall's just gone from strength to strength. So I think it'd be very, very rare to encounter situations like that anymore. Um, but it was, uh, it was, I, I think I enjoyed it from my memory. I think I enjoyed it, but it was uh, it's hard. You know, you, you have to really look after yourself and your, your, yeah, your mental health. And yeah, you know, that question of, do you read reviews? Do you not? Mm. You know, I did. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so there was good days and bad days. Yeah. Um, and it, yeah, it was exciting. It was because, because the work did, play with what what are the what is the contract between audience and performer they really did play with that and challenge an audience and ask them to be uh, to step out of their kind of um passiveness and it was quite it was quite exciting for me to work out if I'd got them to a place where they would step in and because the whole the whole piece um centered on uh whether I could get an audience member to come up and punch me and if someone would stop it so every every day I'd have someone come up and the whole piece was like built like to get to this moment this kind of climactic moment where person would come on stage they'd be totally random I didn't choose them front of house chose them and firstly would they have read the thing that they were supposed to read beforehand would they remember that they read the thing do they realize this is the moment do they realize it's them and do they can they read English because <laughs> I wrote it in English yeah <laughs> so um so there was it was always like pretty hairy like it, it, for me it wasn't a show that you just sort of phoned in at all um and uh so it was always pretty exciting and it, it was I would encourage them to or ask them to punch me in the stomach that was that was the area that I asked them every time every time I tell someone that they someone would be like I'm so Houdini died. And I'd be like, oh, thanks. <laughs> I do that. Late. <laughs> I made the show. Um, so it was always pretty, um, that was exciting. So like, I think I had quite a, I was at the fringe with quite an exciting, what I felt was an exciting piece of work for me to be performing. And I was yeah. really invested in it. I think it's totally different if you're in a piece of work that, I don't know you might have a difficult more difficult relationship with um or you're in a venue that is awkward yeah to you, or you're not quite at the right time for the demographic or that you want to reach or da 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 or you get you know you're at that time of night where your audience might be slightly um drunk or whatever um yeah. but I think I had a good time but in subsequent fringes when I've been I've definitely not um participated in the whole festival in the same way that I did that first time yeah it is like I mean the, the festival is exhausting and as you say there's so many invariants as to how your experience can go um throughout it um another like one of your projects I would really lo- uh, like to talk about is your project Fazlane there's obviously um so if you want to kind of speak more to that as well yeah so Fazlane I guess started life in 2000. 2000- 14 the show Fazlane. Fazlane started a long time ago. Um, the, <laughs> my show Fazlane started in 2014 and it was prior to the independence referendum uh, uh, vote. I was going to say but that's it's a referendum <laughs> that year. And um, I had heard the word Fazlane being banded about and Trident being banded about. And I kind of thought, I don't really know what those things mean, but I know that my family work in that place called Faz Lane I don't know what it is and I have no idea what Trident is um so I got some money from uh was it, it was probably Creative Scotland then it was one of the artist uh I think it was an artist bursary that they did like for oh, a year yeah, or something you could apply for like a certain amount of money and then yeah it was just like a little bit of seed money to go and like research something um so I decided to go to Cove Park and uh, just started this process of researching um, into uh, Faslane, Trident, why we have it, 
um, the kind of nuclear weapons debate in, in the UK and what it meant globally as well in our position. Um, so I was doing that and then obviously at first I thought it was going to be about the impact of the referendum on Faslane because uh, I maybe thought it would be a yes <laughs> result. Wow. And then I was like, oh, it's oh, okay, right, I can't do that then. Um, it's going to be something else. <clears throat> and it became something I think much, much better, I think, because of um, because of that. So I, you know, went in, I was fortunate enough to get into the base um, just before they kind of went on to their highest alert, which I think they have been on their highest alert possibly ever since. I managed to get in before that. I didn't cause the high alert, by the way. It's not, it's not on me. It's not, on me. not Jenna. Yeah, it's not me. Not Jenna. <laughs> Can't believe it. Um, and then the, I went to the peace camp. I met with ex, an ex-commodore of the base. Um, I met with activists, you know, from various factions like CND, uh, CND in Manchester, the, and then people from the nucle- nuclear-free local authorities who stop the weapons being transported through their and local authorities um, and I kind of pieced together this kind of journey through the debate and what it what it meant to have family that that's that survive on their with their work there and that's you know mm-hmm. given them a sustainable life and a career and um, a lot of opportunity and security and then what it means to be outside that and you know what have the benefits of Vaseline been and obviously then what are what are the negatives as well so it was really that again was like a really brilliant piece of work for me as an artist to go through and and learn more about my process and practice because I really found that I, I really enjoyed um meeting people that had totally different belief systems to me and just letting them, uh, you know, conv- like convince me, but I'm not standing there going, you have to convince me. It was just, I come in and I'm, I'm an open book, but I'm also very open to their view. And um, I'm not there to judge. I'm not there to impose what I, what I think or, or, or on, on anyone that I chat to. So it's, so I can get a really good understanding of where they're coming from and what's informing the beliefs that they have and and I would come away from conversations being totally convinced of their view you know so I would swing between being like anti-nuclear to being pro-nuclear you know quite quickly and at one point I met a friend and I'd said actually no I think I'm quite pro-nuclear their face sort of Dropped. I could see them really like considering like I don't know if we can ever speak again if you're <laughs> going to take that view it's like wow this is really this mm. is really difficult stuff um so yeah I then went on to to make the work for um it was actually for the uh, flying solo award which was administered by contact in Manchester uh and then that from there we were able to get to the fringe and I returned to summer hall for that um, and that was also the first time I worked. Oh no, it wasn't the first time actually. It was the second time I worked with Callum Smith, who was my, who became the producer for that project, um, and a previous one. But talk about that one. Um, <laughs> so yeah, went to, went to the fringe with that, and then again, it was a totally different demographic. And really interestingly, we would sometimes have um, people arrive outside our venue and start flyering our audience and they were like cnd sometimes it was it was the cnd i'm pretty sure um scottish cnd and i had to go and ask them to not do that you know i was like i've, I've worked really hard to create a neutral space or you know a space where people of you know at, at either end of this belief of spectrum can come mm. in and not feel attacked about their yeah. view and uh, and you're Packing it up. <laughs> You're messing yeah. it up, mate. Yeah. Go away. <laughs> like, go do it, you know, not right outside my venue. You know, that's mm-hmm. not fair. Um, I need a buffer zone. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I so I was really kind of protective of that space that, that I'd created for that audience because I just I just felt that that was really important because th- that debate, you know, exists on um political um stages and humanitarian ones and you know there's always an agenda 
and actually in theatre we don't have to have an agenda we can we can actually explore these things from a totally different perspective you know we're not trying to win votes or or whatever um or a membership so um I was really really protective of that and uh yeah just every I think every time we did the show there was someone in the audience who you know at the end was like I was at Grenham Common or I used to live in Fans Lane or I'm a submariner or someone who was like I'm a nuclear scientist yeah. <laughs> you know like oh my god everyone's so connected yeah. to this issue so that was really incredible and really humbling as well it's really amazing to have created that space though uh, Jenna because I think there's something as you say that theatre can do that maybe other like other places can't quite um, hold that space and as you say to create a kind of neutral place where and we've seen it right now with lots of other subjects that um, people aren't feeling heard and they feel like they're not being listened to so the conversation has been shut down so everybody's stuck in their section whether wherever whether you think they're right or you think they're wrong the conversation hasn't been able to be had for us to all understand where each other is coming from um yeah definitely I think the you know I I don't know if this was a term at the time it was probably becoming a term because we were we weren't quite in a post-truth era (laughs) quite (laughs) not quite um but rage baiting like there was no rage baiting Mm. just you know I wasn't didn't do that yeah so I was quite I, I was really clear that you know that space had to be free free from that and there's something really for me like um you know being Scottish it's it is unique to Scotland Trident and Faslane there I mean unless I'm missing somewhere really big there's nobody else in the United Kingdom that has it um and the conversations that that then causes so I think it has to be an authentic voice that tells those kind of stories when we're at that when it's something that's so specific to a place yeah and I definitely felt like I I was um somebody that that could have that conversation because of my connection to it but that by no means means I'm the only person that can have that conversation you know there's it would be fantastic to see loads of different perspectives on Mm. on that debate and there really should be you know and years later just like last year somebody emailed me about the show even though it'd been Mm -hmm. five years or something and you know they were quite it was quite strongly worded and they really felt I'd done a disservice to you know their experience and and you know all I could do was acknowledge that and be like well that's your experience and I can only recount my experience of it and and you know it, it it seems really lame to say well you go and make it <laughs> you go and do it but it, it, it we can have lots of work about the same subject yeah. you know I think we need those different perspectives I know like maybe that's not the best way to get work funded <laughs> doing exploring the same thing and that that's definitely one of the challenges that we mm-hmm. face but but it should be a, a, a constant conversation in our in Scottish society I think it, it's it's never not uh, it's never not impacting us whether it's in the news or not it's always there yeah that's a and also a really good point just in general about you know funding and how funding works that you know if there's lots of plays or pieces of theatre and pieces of art that are about the same subject that doesn't mean that they shouldn't be funded because it's the same subject because they're all and hopefully all are coming from it from a different point of view. And that's really important because that's our job as artists. And that one, uh, French First as well. Yeah, and uh, Lustrum Award, mm-hmm. Lustrum Hall. Yeah. Which I think that was the first year of the Lustrum Award. One of the first. Well, I say that because like the award is slightly like wonky. <laughs> <laughs> but now they've nailed it. I think it's quite a secure thing because it's like a... Um, uh, antlers on a on a board and uh, I'm quite sugarly <laughs> I think they've probably worked out how to screw it all together and talking oh. about antlers that's a beautiful segue into the next um 
I next far. Yeah, it is. <laughs> it was beautifully oh, yeah. done, Jenna. Thank you for that. <laughs> I'm just so fixated on <laughs> that subject. Obviously, you are a Highland girl, so this is something that's close to your, I would assume, your life throughout your life, and then coming back a to it as a older human being. Yeah, it was definitely one of the things that I was starting to explore in in the book. The book the book is about um, it's a work of nonfiction, and it it kind of uses similar process to my theatre making practice, where I I went off and I did a hind stock, so a hind being the female deer, um, and I well, wanted yeah, I to it was a stag, and it was and it's okay. a deer. That's all right. Apologies. The um. That I really wanted to do that because it it felt like quite a difficult space to put myself in, um, uh, both physically but also uh, kind of culturally and uh, in terms of my ethics around like animal cruelty. Um, but I was doing it for conservation purposes uh, for the deer cull, which is why well that's why I'm telling myself um, because we we have an ongoing cull uh do we have an is that technically right we have seasons but like the cull is part of that mm-hmm. yeah uh, okay I'm getting into d- difficult territory here <laughs> I'll, I'll just step back um <laughs> but what I was um what I was becoming or have always been aware of is the the sort of gap between what is presented to me as my highland identity and my highland culture and what is my lived experience of that culture so you know sporting um estates stalking uh fishing they're presented as being highland culture or aspects of it and actually very very few people um in the highlands outside of the highlands in scotland generally have access to those things and um, whether you would want to or not um so the the kind of the tweeds, the shortbread, the rifles, yeah. all the whiskies, the whatever, you know, it's it's all kind of packaged up and, and offered as, as your culture. And I, I was just getting a little bit annoyed about that, that, that actually it wasn't a, a real representation for me. So at the same time, I was also doing a lot of studying around um, conservation in Scotland, but also uh, rewilding or, or ecological restoration as it's also known, or renaturing, as it's also known. And what I was becoming aware of was that the people that owned rewilding estates uh, or green estates, as they're kind of sometimes termed, um, those people looked very similar to the ones that owned the sporting estates. And all those people looked very similar to the people that first became the landed gentry in Scotland. And there was this really clear kind of colonial relationship between all of them. And I didn't like that. So I decided I need to go off and just investigate this a little bit and ask some difficult questions. Because I think with with rewilding, um, the the kind of the, the, not necessarily action of rewilding, but the kind of concept of it, there's something a little bit colonial about it because it tends to be done to communities and not always with communities Mm. um and that's also very difficult because a lot of those communities are suffering suffering from depopulation yeah have suffered in the past from depeopling and we have a very difficult relationship uh, culturally with that concept so i kind of wanted to just start to unpick this a little bit um, so the book, you know, while I'm going on this hindstock, which is the centre of, of, of the book, and I come back to it a few times throughout, in between I'm kind of going off and meeting different different uh, people on different estates and different roles and kind of asking them about these things and why do we choose to look after this species and not this? Why do we have this relationship to deer and why is it like this? Or, you know, why do we not know this about them? Um, why are they so emblematic um, and enigmatic as well? Why are they so adaptable? Why are they an open moor species? Why do we, um, when they were a woodland species, why do we undervalue them in the way that we do? Why do I not 
have uh, access to uh, <laughs> stocking if I wanted? Or why does the average person in that community not have access to it? Why are they priced out of it? Um, I'm not a hunter. I don't have ambitions to be. I have no interest in it. It's not, uh, it's not something that I particularly want to put any money into at all. It was really a means of, I think, understanding understanding the the need for deer management and deer control from a conservation perspective but also about stepping into something uh, that's typically um and um, more seen as more masculine a masculine role the hunter the warrior um so i kind of wanted to understand that from my position as a woman and what it meant to be in that landscape and to do that as a woman so I, I met with you know uh, women uh, deer stalkers and um, ecologists as well and to get their perspective on what the whole kind of conservation or land management scene is really like for them you know th sometimes the conversations always just boil down to what do you do when you've got your period you know and you're like hello moon cup if you're able <laughs> yeah also we're we we're also quite adaptable we find ways around this even though it's yeah. awkward um but really trying to kind of understand in different ways like like emotionally and and physically and um i think like a lot of you know i talk about in the book um well a woman i meet she she talks about what's really difficult is that the the kit they have to use just does not serve them at all it's not built for them so from the their outerwear to the the like rifles or shotguns whatever it happens to be with whatever type of management um doesn't fit them like physically the the rifles aren't the right uh size or the scopes aren't in the right place it's very awkward my example really was being in a, an argo which is an all-terrain vehicle which has like a track, four wheels with a track around it, so like a little tank. <laughs> and uh, it is, it's such an uncomfortable vehicle to be in. And as a like petite woman, you know, all the bars to support yourself, you know, are in the wrong position, really. So, you know, from a design perspective, the, the instinct would be, well, we want to make it suitable for women. We, we make it, we do the pink and shrink. Um, but really, you know, who wants to be in a small pink Argo on a hill? <laughs> it doesn't really make yeah. sense. Whereas what does make sense is making a bar longer or <laughs> making it slope <laughs> so someone smaller can hold it at a different point. You know, like yeah. those are the, the adaptations that 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 we need. And they're not, they don't require huge changes in in design or marketing or whatever. So it, it was kind of, yeah, it's, it's starting to go into those those realms. But 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 trying to look a little bit deeper into into our relationship with the, with those kind of male dominated spaces I think yeah how do we move into those spaces as well whatever like whether that's something that you would want to or not the question has to be asked and something else that you said has just kind of really it's really sitting with me is this idea of I wouldn't want to hunt that's not of interest to me but um the communities where this for generations has probably been something that has been done and now is you know controlled of land conservation etc but you made the point about you know monetizing it feels like it's it's being monetized and the people who is it is part of their community and their culture of that community are not being able to access it feels very uh, strong in what you're saying yeah I think like one of the really clear examples is you know you might get a, a, a new landowner that comes in and they want to be a green layered for example and one of the one of the first things they might decide to do is you know if they're going to change land use they might decide well I don't think we need as many stalkers anymore stalkers tend to live in tied housing uh, meaning that the the houses are on the estates that they work on, um, so if they lose their job, they lose their home as well. Scotland, particularly the Highlands and Islands, don't don't have enough homes uh, just available. 
Um, so, so then that has an, a really direct impact on that community because of the change of, of land use. You know, that means that children potentially are going to have to leave that community, the school roles are going to dwindle, um, housing stock is lost. You know, sometimes that housing is made into um, like luxury uh, housing on the estates. Um, so it just comes out of the stock completely and it's unlikely to return if it, if it starts to turn a profit. Um, so these things do have a real, a real direct impact and you know it's and it's happening all across uh, in Scotland it isn't just on these kind of far-flung places um, and also you know there's a lot of concern around uh, productive land being taken out of of kind of agricultural use and then being used for uh, like tree planting for example I don't know how widespread that issue really how it is I don't know the scale of it but that but it's a, a genuine concern of some communities that you know again because it impacts um it impacts those communities uh, in terms of jobs in terms of um product uh, within within them um although the whole farming question is is really quite separate and not one that I I, I chose not to engage with because I knew I wouldn't be able to do it good enough service in the book but um I think really within the book I do touch upon the the fragility of communities and also how like every landscape is different and requires something different and um, so it's 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 necessary to to I think come in and understand that what works in one place doesn't work in another what's right for the Cairn Gorms isn't right for uh like Langham uh, down south it's just they're two totally different places uh, in terms of what how the habitat is made up and how it works yeah and it's like that with communities you know totally different communities absolutely yeah um it's so fascinating and like really different in some ways to what people would expect a theatre maker to do um and was this your first piece of non-fiction writing in terms of long form, uh, yeah, and in in uh, uh, as a book, yeah, obviously, like my work is theatre work is is kind of sometimes people refer to it as like documentary theatre, which I don't really necessarily know what that is, but I think I know. Uh, so obviously, that works mainly non-fiction, if you like, as well, if you would use that term. Yeah, um, but yeah, in terms of like, I think the themes probably feel quite probably feel a little bit different um but really it, it's it's the same uh, practice it's the same process it's still trying to understand a, a concern or an issue from lots of different perspectives and give voice to that mm. and um is there plans I think well I, I think I know there is uh, there's plans for hindsight to become uh theater piece yeah that's that's kind of the that is the plan I don't know when I'm going to be able to put that plan into place um because I think it's going to have to be me driving it and making it happen which uh yeah great I can do I just maybe I don't have the capacity right now or the energy to do that even though like it would make a lot of sense to be working on that right now but yes it it's I would it was always it was going to be a piece of theatre before it was a book um and then lockdown happened so that had to stop um and then the book thing took over um but if that hadn't then I would have been plugging away at getting development opportunities for it so I'm kind of hoping that now the book exists that might make getting development opportunities or even pots of money that that might make it easier but I don't really know Mm -hmm. I always find in in our in our work you kind of assume oh getting this thing means that thing's easier and then you get the thing and you go that's not easier what (laughs) how are you supposed to do it then you know it's kind of like yeah so they say like when a door closes another one opens opens. it's not it's like when a door closes you've just got to find a different way in down the chimney or something (laughs) There's no other door opening usually. 
<laughs> Where is the handle? <laughs> yeah, and it's a windowless building. What's going on? <sighs> and um, also for um, people, some people might recognise you from if they uh, took part in any of the Hack the Patriarchy um, workshops that you facilitated on. Um, and obviously you are on an intersectional feminist podcast um (laughs) so yay um love to hear your thoughts on where we're at with our intersectional feminism yeah it's scotland it's always a work in progress isn't it it really is i think uh, i think like you know i can only reflect on what what i can be doing i think and um you know, I'm when I do get to be in spaces with other people, which feels so, so much less than it used to be at the moment. And, um, you know, I do do make a point of trying to understand my position in that room in terms of how much power do I have? How can I um, how can I influence this space to meet my intersectionist feminist agenda? Um, yeah. And um and quite often it, it's because I'm long in the tooth now because I don't really, because I've, you know, um, had to make my own opportunities. I'm quite, uh, I'm, I never assume I'm going to continue working with a company after I've worked with them once. <laughs> I know other people maybe like to do that and go, oh, this could happen again. I just go, this isn't happening again. So if you do something wrong, I'm calling you out about it. Mm. And it's not going to be, public necessarily it's not going to be on twitter or rage baiting or anything or you know this accountability culture as i prefer to refer to it but but there will be there will be meetings had and there will be conversations and and i think i've certainly yeah just been looking at how i can better serve um the powerless people in those spaces um, and how can i look after their their needs um rather than my own um because I'm just at that stage now where I don't I don't have to have an ego in these spaces. I don't have to convince people that I'm good at what I do. You know, I can just come in and do my work. And I also have the capacity to look after other people. Mm. And I think we're we're developing now like a really good, I think a really good network of people that are doing the same thing and are, are hopefully starting to create this culture in those spaces. Um, like one thing I, I quite often recommend to people is like, again I'll do this (laughs) but I know other people maybe can't or they don't feel they can yet but you know in like those job interviews or auditions like asking those difficult questions about safeguarding yeah you know like what do you do when somebody does a fucking horrible thing in your organization or how are you going to protect protect me or um how do you protect your staff or you know and really really encourage um people to have answers to those things so so those answers aren't just in a policy that's somewhere on a website or in an email that somebody sent them once or whatever you know so it's actually live in everybody's thoughts and um yeah I think I think we're we're having those conversations much more and which you know I love I'm here for it you know anything that I can do to to help you know in my in my position yeah I uh completely agree with everything and also kind of checking checking myself as well sometimes that um because it's easy to get when you're in a echo chamber to kind of get lost and forgotten and you know someone said recently to me you know if your feminism is intersectional then it has to include a Tory voting feminist which like I would normally with my politics probably be like oh (laughs) but yeah yeah I mean there's I mean it's not just specific to Tories though no 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 I was just using yeah I think it's more that internalized patriarchy isn't it yeah so I think it's when you when you can identify that and yeah it's really interesting when you come across that uh yeah I've been in a few situations where you realize that's what's happening um, that you're talking with someone that has internalized that and uh, yeah I think I'm still trying to work out how to 
how to handle that or how to hold that and still be you know not try to trash someone else's belief systems but just sort of highlighting or saying there's there's a there's a different way around this but um but yes it's it's uh interesting what you're saying about the echo chamber for sure Mm. for sure you know if you are a Tory and you're listening I'm really glad you're here and um it's it's a yeah there's it's a it's a remind I think it was a reminder to me that just and I use that really flippantly um just Mm -hmm. but it's a reminder that we all have internalized a misogyny Mm -hmm. the patriarchy has worked its way and done its job very very well um and it's yeah a a constant checking of yourself of myself um because I don't want to speak yeah. for anyone else and just uh, also on that thing that you mentioned as well about um accountability and a uh, accountability culture and like Louise and I have talked about this quite a lot about we don't necessarily we don't believe cancel culture is useful there are obviously certain people where their line is drawn and that is that and there are certain things that you know you you should can't be coming back from and shouldn't be coming back from because of what you have done but if people aren't allowed to have the conversation and the learning, then we just go around in a big circle again, right? Yeah, I mean, surely everyone deserves a redemption arc in their life story. Yeah, you need a, a redemption arc. It just makes me think of like Marvel and stuff like that. So I'm now off in a whole... Oh, really? <laughs> like now off in a whole like cartoon thing I I watched the godfather three last night which like everyone totally pans I think but it was the 2020 cut and then uh I really enjoyed it (laughs) I've always I've like I've only seen it maybe twice and I've liked it both times I saw it so yeah I think like the whole Michael Corleone wanting his redemption at the end is really interesting but then, but and actually, when I was, I've seen to a friend, oh, I'm watching the Godfather films. I've avoided them because, you know, Coppola and, blah, blah, and then talked about this, this uh, situation that had occurred in the 70s or whatever. And they were like, that wasn't him. So, like, what? Like, that wasn't him. Oh my God. Oh my God. <laughs> I have to go back to this. I'm so sorry. You know, so there's, there's yeah. a little bit of that too. You do have to yeah. check yourself and go, right, hang on, hang on. I haven't done the research here. <laughs> And I'm just like pushing this narrative that doesn't exist. Hang on. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. we all we all have these moments where we have to learn and come back and um come at something again and go, hang on, sorry, sorry, my bad. I didn't do that right. I think it is quite clear in your work though that that's there as well. Like, you know, everything that we've kind of talked about already today in the conversations that you have in your work of trying to as you like with Fazlane making sure that it was a neutral um and it was balanced I think more of that is needed especially just now because social media brings so much I'm doing hands things with my hands that listeners can't see which is really helpful when it's a podcast just so much um rage and upset and anger and fear that we can't see past all that it becomes a cloud yeah that's it and I think like with the you know the rage beating which is a phrase I really enjoy using at the moment like it's a great phrase isn't it like whenever whenever I feel strongly about something I I, instead instead of doubling down on that feeling I often kind of go well why do I feel so strongly about this what what are the things what are the factors and things that have been influencing me why do I feel like this um and sometimes it's because Jeremy Vines on Channel 5 and they give you a ridiculous question like should teachers be feeding children dogs <laughs> you know <laughs> when would that happen why yeah. would that happen that was a really terrible example I just couldn't I heard my dog in the background which is why I said dog and <laughs> But, you, you know, kind of going, all oh, right, hang on, that's that's what's happening. And this thing is built to create this mm. reaction in me. And actually, I don't have to take that on. Just let mm. it go, turn over, turn off, whatever. Just engage 
differently choose how you engage in these in these um rageful debates it's very helpful i am a terrible one for letting the rage come that's that's just that's all right um before we finish up um i want to ask you uh the question so uh you can answer this however you feel whatever it brings up for you whether it's good bad indifferent so jenna what what does the phrase persistent and nasty mean to you i guess it means uh yeah being being persistent isn't it when the when the door closes just build a new door or whatever other people say uh, just keep going that tenacity like don't don't get weighed down by everything just keep 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 going but be boundaried and uh in terms of nasty like yeah keep saying those difficult things I think <laughs> keep having those difficult conversations I think yeah. And don't don't worry about being uh, nasty. <laughs> I really like the uh, be boundaried, though. I think that's very helpful. Um, yeah. yeah, very helpful. And um, people can get hindsight. Um, I will make sure and link a where you can order um, hindsight from. Are you available in most bookshops? Oh gosh, yeah, all the good ones and the bad ones and all the ones in between. And all of them. Fabulous. So wherever you get your books, get yourself hindsight. Um, Jenna, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. It's been an absolute joy to talk to you. Um, I'm feeling very inspired. Oh yeah, no, I am. I'm feeling inspired to like re-look at things and how I look at them and make sure that I am letting all the sides be heard in my own I'm sure you're doing the work already Elaine <laughs> that's pretty clear from, from this podcast and everything else I don't think Thanks. you have to worry thank you so much Jenna it's been an absolute joy and until next time lovely listeners stay, stay nasty, nasty. Yeah!